Did you ever think you were made it? I feel I'm so close I could take sweet victory I know this life meant for me yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to hate it. Now they run, homie, look what I become. I'm the I'm the one. I'm Patrick, host of Value Team, and today I'm sitting down with Clint Emerson. Clint Emerson is a former Navy SEAL from SEAL Team 6 who wrote a book about 100 deadly skills and training the average person. I mean, some random things from how to steal a plane to how to bury a body, some weird things that he learned when he was in the Navy as a Navy SEAL. So if you like any of the military interviews we do, you're going to like today's sit down. Clint, thanks for coming out, buddy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you for coming out. So, you know, I'm reading this book. Obviously, we're going to spend some time talking about that one here. But I'm going through the 100 deadly skills. And you got a chapter that says how to steal a plane, which everyone needs to know how to steal a plane. Of course. You know, you got another one that says how to uh, discreet lose surveillance, which is great. We need to know that. And then, (laughs) you know, how to dispose of a body, which is insane to me. So I looked at this book. I said, listen, is Clint writing this book for us for for citizens to learn how to do this or you're writing this book for the bad guys so what inspired you to want to write this book uh there was a couple of things all right so first getting out of the military right as you transition you go from hero to zero you look for things to do a friend gave me an opportunity to write a book we were supposed to do it together he'd already published a bunch of books um and i said sure well then, he's an older guy, so he ended up having back surgery and left me hanging, and I was left to finish this thing. Um, but I knew that when I got out, I wanted to kind of go down the path of crisis management, and this is a great way, an entertaining way, an informative way, to get consumers um, to take a little bit more ownership in their own personal security and safety. Uh, but I also knew there were some tactics uh, that in order to get the attention of media, guys like you, you got to throw some taboo stuff in there. And uh, certainly the skills, plus a couple of others that uh, you mentioned, uh, certainly get the attention of people. Um, but ultimately, I really did want to get a book out there that everyone could learn from. Uh, I like to joke that it's probably the most popular book sitting next to a man's toilet in America, without a doubt. Uh, it's illustrated for all of those army crayon eating mm-hmm, guys mm-hmm. that like pictures in their yes. books. I'm just kidding. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's the short answer. I tell answer. you, that's what makes it helpful though, man, when you look right. at it, the pictures. You know, for yeah. some of us 1.8 GPA folks, we need basic illustrations <laughs> yeah. to show uh, that's the goal. how to do this. But so tell me, let, let's go through a couple of them before we go into your story here sure. uh, with the book. So how do I steal a plane? You know, how do I go about stealing a plane? Well, first you have to know how to fly it. Okay. Okay, that's that's rule so that's a bigger one. problem yes, right there. Uh, but if you do know how to steal a plane and you happen to be on a run on the run in a semi-permissive, non-permissive environment, then you go to a Delta Airspace Airport, which is your smaller airports. Some of them have towers, some of them do not, but the goal is that's a less environment for security. So therefore, you'll be able to get in and get out discreetly. And on top of that, it's usually uh, the hangars in those smaller airports have smaller aircraft. So a single engine land aircraft is what you'd be going after. And a lot of times these things were built in the 70s. They don't have like, you know, these high speed locks on the doors. So if you're going after Cessnas or Pipers, really it's all about the magneto switch, which is what gives everything power. The prop is the crank. Uh, and a lot of these will start with just that kind of simple knowledge. 
Um, on top of that, if it's got an increased ignition system, then being able to pick the lock to start and then magneto switches and then pulling the prop and it'll start right up. Just be careful when you pull the prop. You've got to get your arms out of the way real quick. Yeah, something yeah. could happen to your arm. They could disappear. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you, are this stuff you learned when you were in as a SEAL yourself, where in case you're in war, something happens, you got to try to get away, you have to learn how to fly a plane and steal a plane, or is it more for entertainment purposes? It's a little bit of both. Um, in, in the later part of my career, I certainly experimented with uh, alternative ways of getting yourself out of trouble. Um, it became really important to think about and think about things, you know, if, hey, okay, what if, worst case scenario, um, what am I going to do? Um, I just happened to be a pilot. It was something I went and did on my own. And, uh, and then, I yes, I did add it to the book for entertainment value. Got it. Yeah. How, much you, how many of these hundred have you actually used in war and experience for yourself where it's firsthand, not something you're just writing about? Probably 50% or more of those. That's a good amount. Yeah, when you talk about some of the surveillance-based stuff, right. um, we, we get into that in the community. Uh, when you talk about some of the more personal security and how to be the gray guy in society, especially when you're traveling the globe. Mm -hmm. um, when I talk about third-party awareness, personal awareness, cultural awareness, all of those things are mentioned in the book. Those are all really important to lessen yourself as a target when traveling abroad, whether you're a tourist or you're a guy like me. It just applies to so many different environments. Hell, in this country alone, if you go from one city to the next, you can find yourself in trouble because you don't understand that city's culture, right? So it applies everywhere. Very true. Yeah. That's good to know because sometimes, you know, you write a book and, hey, 17 keys to success and a guy wrote it, he's never done a business before. But these are things that you've actually applied yourself and seen uh, 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 whether it's in wartime or in your own personal life as well. Right, a whole bunch I've applied. About 50% or more applied to work. I'm betting in, yeah. in civilian life you haven't disposed of a body. I'm, you know, if I'm a betting <laughs> no. man, I've interviewed mobsters and other guys, yeah, yeah. you're a SEAL, I'm, I'm betting that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Not so, yet, right. So, so, so I had uh, uh, Captain Duncan Smith on, okay? And anytime I, I bring folks from the FBI or NSA or CIA or SEAL or Anything that's worked at the highest level in military, ask them, what do you think is the biggest threat we're facing today, right? For you, everyone has their own opinion on this. Mm -hmm. You're, you seem like the guy that's very astute. You pay attention to details, all the stuff about where you sit, like when you go into a room, you know, that whole one scene you were looking at where Matt Damon is saying, the guy sitting at the, you know, in that one movie scene, he's sitting here, four cars parked out. So you're like, well, not to that point, but you could kind of pay attention to it. Right. What do you think is our biggest threat right now? It's a former Navy SEAL military guy. What do you see as our biggest threat today? Well, I think there's multiple threats. Um, there's an acronym I came up with called THREAT, T-H-R-E-A-T. It's a great way to break down threats mm -hmm. in any environment you find yourself. The first one is technical threats, which is audio, video, your mobile devices, cyber really is the, the umbrella to that one. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the cyber front is the wild, wild west. It's not regulated. There's a lot of threats there, both the consumer, the government. We've even seen it work to potentially sway elections here in the United States along with overseas. So I feel the cyber world is the next frontier, mainly because everyone has a device in the palm of their hand. Connectivity is very easy, and there's a lot of nefarious characters out there that want to take advantage and exploit everyone who actually has a device. So that's, that's number one. And then you've got the H, which is health threats. I mean, we're rolling into 
flu season. So all of a sudden that will be number one in the media within a couple of months. So, um, and then of course, when you talk about active shooters and under health is also making sure, you know, stopping the bleeding is something good to know and that you've got to be aware of. Um, and then R is really your violent crime, raids, robbery, and ransom. Uh, I feel like those are domestically a big deal um, with the increase in active shootings. 2018, we had 450 plus workplace-related active shooters. Um, workplace? Workplace. Active shooters, 450 plus of them in 2018. How many of them were employees, by the way? How many of them were from outside? How many of them were actual employees? A lot of times, there's the big three on how you break down active shooters and yeah. the why. Uh, mental health, mm -hmm. right, is a big one. Uh, relationships, okay, and that relationship is defined as relationships at home or in your private life. Relationships at work with a supervisor, a peer, or a subordinate. Makes right? sense. So, yep. Um, and then in third place is usually money is the other reason people come and start shooting. So, you know, you have to be, you know, you have to be aware of that. And domestically, I think that's a, obviously a big threat. It's at the forefront of everybody's mind these days. Um, and so you've got to at least be thinking about it. Um, when you, the rest of the threats, E, environmental threats, you know, you've got, uh, 900 tornadoes a year in this country. You've got hurricane season going on right now. Um, so those are always something that's there and they're very seasonal. And so you gotta be aware of it. Uh, a is another invisible threat that we all deal with and we don't even know it is agencies working against us. That's foreign intel services. That's law enforcement that may pull you over in foreign lands where bribery is a second form of income. And if you don't know that, then you'll go to jail instead. You believe that? I do believe that. A Even in of, America, a lot is happening here no, 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 as well? No, no, no. When you go overseas, overseas. definitely bribery sure, of course. is the second. Is, I think most of them make more money. I'm from Iran. I, I, I know what it is to say. Go, you go into politics to make more money than stay in the civilian world <laughs> yeah. because you can do additional. Okay. Yeah. And then T is the, is the one threat that will never go away, and that is terrorism. So... In short, to answer your question, when you talk about what is the threat that's most concerning or the one that keeps you up at night, it really depends on where you sleep each day, right? So the point being is you really have to know your environments mm. and know the threats that could potentially happen in those environments in order to answer that question accurately. And it's the one thing I push all day, every day is that, hey, just know what those threats are in your environment, the clues and those cues and then you can elude those threats altogether and never have to face them. But you gotta know about them, you gotta get educated on them, and you've gotta stay, like you said at the beginning, you know, in the Jason Bourne video, you gotta be at least 50% aware and put your phone away in order to, you know, know what's going on. Put your phone away, what do you mean put your phone away? Put your phone away, because we are attached to our phones, right? Mm -hmm. We're on, we constantly have our head in our mobile devices, um, when in reality we need to get our heads up and looking around. Simple. Simple, it Simple, really is. but it's something not many of us are doing today. <laughs> no, we so, need to know. Have so why don't we go through some of these? Let's go through this. Let's go sure. through the technical with cyber, okay? I'm in the financial industry, and one of the things I'm noticing happen more today is when I'm going to conferences with other CEOs in these large $100, $200 billion insurance companies, five years ago, no one's talking cybersecurity, but maybe for two minutes, okay? Ten years ago, no one even talks about cybersecurity, okay? Right. When we're going into these. 
Today, everyone's talking about cybersecurity. Without a doubt. With, when I tell you everyone, every meeting I'm going to in different insurance, everybody's talking about cybersecurity. So let's go through the basic stuff of cybersecurity, okay? The most basic way for me to protect myself uh, when I'm dealing with cybersecurity, password. Is there any specific rules you follow for picking passwords uh, uh, for your bank account, for your social media, for your phone? And then is there anything you recommend on ways to uh, keep your password so because sometimes when you have to remember 50 different passwords or 50 different places Do you save it in a place so you can go to it or do you have something you recommend? So let's start off with the most basic thing password. How do you view passwords? I think passwords still are the number one vulnerability at an individual level Okay, and because of that that's what makes companies vulnerable and uh, so the hackers they know this and these days hackers aren't usually you know, the kid in the basement of his mom's house, you know, yelling for a cheese sandwich and sitting there trying to get into someone's information. A lot of times they are programmers putting together these packets of malware and attaching them to links or trying to, you know, um, discreetly inject them into a network so that an entire system is affected. Um, but when you back up to the simple stuff like passwords, uh, the rule I follow is 24 characters or longer, okay? And that sounds crazy, but the reality is, is if you type in a phrase that has zero attribution to you, your family, your personal life, your dogs, your anniversary dates, nothing personal, and you put in a phrase. Now, within that phrase, you can have you know, a change in characters, you can add in some symbols, so instead of S's, you can use the money symbol, right? Um, but a phrase. The beauty of this is that phrase, usually you can type it a lot faster because we're used mm -hmm. to home keys mm -hmm. and we know where our, our fingers know where they're going. Yep. And they tend to be able to type that phrase, whatever you choose, um, a whole lot faster than some crazy complex combination of letters, numbers, and symbols, right? Um, but the idea is, is when you go past the 24 character mark, what you're doing is actually eluding any of those malware packages that or packets that can run a virus against your username and password. They can run at usually 500 characters a second, right? Trying to figure out your password. Uh, they'll stay on target, what used to be, my knowledge may be old, and I'm not a cyber guy, by the way. Um, but they used to stay on target roughly 15 minutes before moving on. So when someone's attacking, let's say, a small business website, it'll sit there and run through 500 different characters. But if your, char if your password is 24 characters or longer, mm -hmm. then it would take roughly 15 to 20 years for a supercomputer to break the code. 15 to 20 years. Right, because you're going beyond, it's like combination locks, right? The more numbers you put in, the longer it takes for someone to crack it. And then it gets to the point where no one can crack it if even the most experienced thief trying to get into a manipulation type lock, right? So, and what is that level to get to that point? It's what? It's just keeping it even more technical or going more than 24 uh, letters? 24 or more. 24 characters. Or more. Characters, yeah. And so now what you're doing is putting time on your side because it can't sit there and run against your, it can, but it won't run against your password all day, every day, because then where it where the malware comes from or the virus comes from will then be detected and they don't want to be detected so the goal at the end is to run 
a 24 character password or more on everything you have, and then you are defeating a lot of those types of hacks. Where are you storing your password? So meaning, what do you recommend? So nowadays we got 50 logins, 40 logins, right? Is right. there anything you're suggesting where, or do you suggest same password for all 40, 50? Do you change them up? Because it's a lot of work right there. It is. So, I mean, there's a lot of different tricks. One, yes, there's apps out there that will maintain and even create very complex passwords for you and keep track of all that. I'm not one of those guys. I'm still kind of old school. I keep all of my passwords right here. But what I have done is in my system, I have the 24 character phrase. Then on the back end of that, I will put the word that relates to whatever it is it goes into. So if it's my cable provider and I want to log in, it's the phrase and cable. Then it's the phrase, then bank. I don't use specifics. I'm not going to put, you know, uh, what's a cable company? Verizon Fios, right? I'm not going to put it, I'm not going to put anything that specific, but I will put cable. Then on my next one, I will put bank. If I have three banks that I have to log into, bank one, bank two, bank mm -hmm. three, but Got they're it. all at the tail end of the 24 character. That way I don't have to remember so much, but yet I'm still bulletproof. The other piece of this equation is your username. A lot of these, a lot of sites will make you believe that your username has to be your email address, right? But it's worth trying to make it something other than that, right? Because that is typically easy for the bad guys to figure out as the username, but it is a crucial piece to them getting into your accounts. So treat your username like another password. Make sure it's, a, a, just make it wow. something that isn't related to you. So that that way now, it doesn't matter, right? If you've got a great password and you're not using your email address as a username, they're not getting in. And then the other, the third piece to this equation at a personal level is two-part authentication. It's become very popular. Mm -hmm. Anytime you have the opportunity on your emails, banking, everything, make sure you turn it on. A lot of them ask you, hey, do you want that? Sure. Is it an extra step that's sometimes a pain in the ass? Yeah, because you got to wait for the text to come through and you get your six-digit number and then you put it in. Mm -hmm. But yeah. that's better than someone else getting in. I agree. You know, one of the things that uh, happened to us last year is uh, uh, one of our Instagram accounts got an email saying you're about to get verified, okay, and click on this. And the person clicked on it. And then we went to it. And then after you went to it, it was never from Instagram. And so one of our employees that's working, you're just basically thinking, okay, one another account that's getting verified, let me go out there and do this. And then it was someone else that stole the account, changed the password, emailed, saying, if you want your account back, I want $10,000 from you. Yes. And they're doing that now. So they're doing that with Gmail, they're doing that with Instagram, they're doing that with Facebook. And one of the ways that I was told is check to see if it's at Facebook, if it's coming from Facebook, right? not Facebook customer service, you know, Los Angeles. That's not Facebook. You have to look at that as well. That was another area that they were uh, talking about, which uh, happened here for us. Any other item on cybersecurity that you're seeing uh, as a threat for folks out there to be thinking about on how they can protect themselves? Uh, you just hit on the big one. So passwords being the vulnerability, and then, of course, people clicking on the link that they shouldn't. Um, and so that's either spear phishing, where they go after someone like you, a CEO, CFO kind of guy. The popular scam a year or two ago was it would appear as an email from the CEO to the CFO 
saying, I need you to transfer. That's, that's, what, that's what just happened six months ago. Right. Transfer. And it's happened multiple times in the last six months. We've caught it every single time. Good. Yeah. But yeah. you'd be surprised. There's a lot of companies I that bet. fall for oh, it. Yeah, absolutely. Because the email address looks like it's coming from the CEO, and in reality it wasn't, but it's like, give yeah. me, I need you to transfer the money right now. And then some of those CFOs listen to their CEO, and they transfer the money. And then it's gone forever. So, yes, look at those email addresses. But I also tell companies all the time, you can make your signature block part of your security protocol, right? Any email that comes through, make sure there's something special about the signature blocks that all the employees use. That way, if someone from the outside tries to pretend to be you, you can look at a signature block and go, nope, that's not someone within the company. Back in the day, you could do wallpaper or watermarks. You probably still can, you know, through some of your email um, exchanges. So you can put a wallpaper, too, that's specific to your company so that everybody knows that's internal email and it is legit. Whereas if it came with just a white background in the email, then you know it isn't. The other thing I want to talk to you about is uh, 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 the anonymous emails. You said number 58, uh, sending anonymous emails. What did you mean by this on sending anonymous emails? Leave zero forensic traceback. Really? <laughs> to this level? Well, so privacy has certainly become a big issue, right? There is a lot of people that um, don't want marketing issues or marketers trying to get in. And, well, we hear about it all the time now, right? That Alexa is always listening. Mm -hmm. We hear about Facebook is always watching. Um, so what it is, is that's giving someone the ability in a very simple way to increase their privacy and anonymity when they're online. So it walks you through on how to download things properly, not utilizing any of your personal Wi-Fi or work Wi-Fi, download some apps, go through a couple of steps, and before you know it, you've created an anonymous world that you can now do whatever you want to do without worrying about whether it's Big Brother, Facebook, Alexa, or anybody else watching. So it's just to increase people's security based on privacy alone. Excellent. Yeah. Good. Uh, we'll, we'll keep coming back to a couple of crazy things you got here, man, because it's, it's nonstop. It's <laughs> yeah. one after another. Okay, next one. So you said technical cyber. Next one you said health. Active shooter. Let's talk about active shooter, right? So. Uh, what is what is starting to happen is we we have increased our security here more ever since we've noticed what's been happening. You know, uh, uh, having a security person now we're training on active shooter. What happens when that happens? And when we're in the military, you're you're training different methods of what happens. And there's a lot of different philosophies with active shooter. One says you go the whole zigzag if you see somebody when it happens in a movie theater or at workplace. Another one said somebody should attack the active shooter because if you don't attack them, they can spray everybody in the room and at least one person can stop them. What are your philosophies and views on how to handle active shooters? Um, I, I, you know, it's a little bit of everything you just mentioned. So the mantra that's become very popular, um, and it, was, it started with uh, a video produced by the city of Houston, then it became the, the federal kind of iconic run-hide-fight video, and it's been passed around. It's only about five minutes long, um, and I, I support that philosophy. One, because it's easy, right? Run-hide-fight. The words define themselves. But I like to caveat that there's actually more to each piece of it, right? One, the environment you're in dictates what you're going to do. 
the situation that you might find yourself in also is part of the decision-making process. Um, so if it's a run, I tell people all the time, don't just run like aimlessly, right? If you see a herd of people go by, we all have the mammalian reflex that says, oh, I should run with them. Your job is to counter that feeling and stop for a second, look, listen, pay attention to your surroundings, and determine where the gunfire is coming from. Because here's the one thing most people don't tell you, is gunshots fired indoors is much different than gunshots fired outdoors. When they're indoors, they're about 100 times louder. Okay, that's number one. Number two, the sound ricochets off the hallways, stairwells, walls, you name it. So it makes it omnidirectional. Hmm. So a lot of times in an active shooter scenario, when the shots are fired indoors, people inadvertently run towards the shooter because they think they're running away from it because the bang sound was from their left, right? But the shooter is actually wow, to the right. that's a good point. So in those situations, before you run, you want to trust your eyes, question your ears, especially indoors, okay? So that's number one. Running in a zigzag, if you find yourself in the open, right, and there's no one around, there's no cover, then yeah, be erratic with your movements, right? Run like a crazy person, mm -hmm. because if it's just you and the shooter, you want to make it as difficult on him as possible. Because by running in a zigzag forces him to change his elevation and his windage, right? Elevation is moving that barrel up and down. Windage is moving it left and right. So you want him to have to really try and get you. But the odds are you're not going to be the only one. But if you are zigzagging, then he's going to redirect his attention to much easier targets. And as horrible as that sounds, that's how you survive. Um, then when it comes to the hide, I tell people all the time the hide should be looked at as temporary. At all costs, it should be temporary. And you should run from cover to cover. Cover is anything that stops bullets. Concealment is something that still hides you, but it doesn't necessarily stop bullets. All of these things you can identify well ahead of time. So you mentioned your work environment. You've increased security. But the best thing every employee can do is identify the things that stop bullets now while you have plenty of time and zero stress. The last thing you want to do is make decisions with increased stress and zero time because the odds are you're going to make the wrong decision and end up dead. So find your cover now, which is structural pillars, you know, dense wood. Way granite. before the event happens. Right. Like start learning about your work environment now. Right. Because we all live in a very small yeah. pattern of life. We're at work, we're at home, our favorite coffee shop, the gym, whatever. In all of those environments that you're at the most, those are the environments you should start looking around going, okay, that 45-pound plate, yep, that'll stop bullets. Uh, yeah, that granite whatever desktop, I can flip that over, get behind it, that'll stop bullets. Or that structural pillar that's in my building, you know, that's dressed up to mm -hmm. look like, you know, it doesn't look like mm -hmm. anything special because it's got sheetrock, it's decorative. They, you know, obviously architects want those structural pillars to blend into the environment, but they're everywhere. You just got to identify them ahead of time. So um, if you find yourself in a room or, or what, a dead end, that is a bad place to be, right? The bathroom, dead end. A closet, dead end. So Would stay, you put movie theater in that situation as well? If you only have two exits, you're up, your shooter's at the bottom? You can be in a dead end in that case okay. too, right? So now it's about getting out of sight so that you're not in their sights. Uh, 
Um, but if you find yourself in a room, know how to barricade a door properly. There's some little bit of physics and science to it, but you stack things in front of an inward opening door, linear. So it's desk, right, against the door. Then behind the desk is another desk, table, chairs, whatever. Extend that, that line of furniture all the way to the opposing wall and let the opposing wall be your brace against the door. Make sense? Now, no one's getting in. Mm -hmm. If it's outward opening doors, in a lot of commercial environments, you have the automatic door closer at the top. It's like an elbow joint. You can take your belt off, wrap it around that elbow joint nice and tight. Now it makes it difficult for the guy to get in, but not impossible. So you have to keep that in mind. What you're doing is buying time. And that's why I say, when you hide, make it a temporary thought process. Meaning, as soon as you get in there, you're immediately looking for your next out. So if there's windows, throw a chair through the window, out through the window you go, head to the tree line, head to a neighbor's house, head to you know, another business building, but get out of the building is the number one objective because the X, it's all about getting off the X. You being a military guy, you know this just as well as I do. The X is the point in which your adversary decides they have the greatest advantage, where you're most vulnerable where speed and stealth benefits them most. Your job is to get off the X as quickly as possible. So schools are the X. Some, work, some places of uh, work are the X. Sometimes your home is the X. Your job is to get out of there and, you know, to get out of there as quickly as possible and to safety. The final piece of the equation is fight. And a lot of times for the average person, that should be the last resort, right? And when you fight, you're fighting for your life, meaning you have to increase your violence equal to or greater than your adversaries in order to win. So fight, 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 fight for your life, you know, and use improvised weapons if you can. If you're at work, team up, right? So if you know he's coming, you're in a dead end, you have no other outs, and there's just two of you, you're gonna make a quick plan, a little bit of leadership, someone's gotta find the courage. Uh, and we all know courage is just as contagious as panic. So do not panic because then others will start to panic. Powerful. Right. Courage. Pick courage every time, yep. even if you got to fake it till you make it. Yep. Pretend that you're brave and you will be brave. So when those shots get closer and closer to your door and when that muzzle comes through the door, number one man, the weapon is the priority. Get control of that weapon. Number two man is going for the hips or the head. If we talk about MMA and the fighting world, we know that the way you control a body is by controlling the spine. The best way to control the spine is either the pelvis or the skull. The pelvis is a bigger target. And when you have stress, right, a ton of stress and a ton of adrenaline, it's better just to go for the big target because going for the head might seem a really small target mm -hmm. in that time in your life, right? So number one man's going for the weapon, total control. Number two's going for the hips, separate the adversary from the weapon. And then if you have the opportunity, you can use the weapon against him or everybody's gonna dogpile the bad guy and keep him down on the ground until the first responders arrive. Clint, how often do companies call you after the fact when an incident like this happens? How often do people hire you after something happened? I've had a few, um, but you would be surprised on how many companies culturally uh, won't even let the words active shooter be said even today. Why is that? They, they just still don't want, one, they don't want to scare their employees. So it's a very critical decision point for a lot of your global security directors and human resources 
on whether to really train people on this because they're afraid that the messaging is something bad is coming, something bad is going to happen. Why would they train us on this unless they're not telling us something? And sometimes those thoughts of senior HR or senior security um, is what prevents them actually from making a move. But we've navigated those cultures by switching the language. It could be violent intruder, it can be aggression. So there's a ways to teach a workforce without saying those words that might be kind of culturally scary to them. Really? Yeah. And you're seeing that? And we are seeing that even today with the, with the amount of media and exposure that active shooters are getting. There's still a lot of companies out there that don't really want to say it out loud. Now, let, let me ask you, for a company side, how many times is it people attracting it where you, you said something, you said the last thing you want to do is make a decision during a crisis. I think this is something you said in one of your interviews. Uh, I'm assuming you're saying that because you're trying to say you want to be so prepared that you don't need to make a decision. It's just instinct purely uh, acting on it. Is that kind of what your point was behind not having to make a decision during crisis? Correct. Okay. You, you want to basically act out decisions that you've made a hundred times hundred times before. Yeah. Got it. So is there anything companies can do to prevent any situations like that happen? Meaning preventative measures, not even, you know, uh, uh, let's prevent any of this stuff to happen that it can never happen at our company. Or is there, no matter what you do, it can still happen at your company? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember going to this um, FBI profiler, right? And a lot of those guys have quite the education in psychology um, and behavioral sciences. And uh, I found it pretty interesting that he pretty much laid out that 10% of any demographic, so that could be a company, that could be a state, that could be a country, you're going to have 10% of the population that's going to have what he called dangerous personalities, right? And so if you... 10%. 10% of dangerous, potential dangerous personality traits. So that could be someone who's got a little bit of sociopath in them, someone who's got a little bit of psychopath in them. Um, and there was a long list of what is considered a potential dangerous personality trait. Um, so no matter how much you vet in your hiring processes, no matter how many screening processes you go through in the military, there's a good chance that there's 10%-ish of people that you're around that could have those traits and could activate them or they could be triggered, um, whether it's uh, you know their own personal crisis going on in their life um, or it could be that they went down the path of um, you know substance abuse. It really, it really varies what the triggers could be. Um, so it's difficult to say, hey, how do you just prevent it? You, there is no way to just totally prevent hiring a potential active shooter. But what you can do is give your people the emergency preparedness protocol and training so that when it happens, it increases the odds of survivability for everyone. Got it. That's, uh, that's good to know. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's coming up again more and more even in businesses where people are asking me about what we can do to prevent this from happening. Mm -hmm. uh, next, securing homes. Okay, so you're living in a house. Uh, I saw a couple of the clips where you're looking at the exact, uh, uh, you know, uh, format of where the house is. This is the bedroom. This is an exit. This is this. This is that. Uh, before we even go into that, are you a fan of safe rooms? Like, you know, buying one of these ten, twenty thousand dollars safe rooms or the underground ones? Are you a fan of those? I would say I think they're pretty cool. Um, I think if you could 
create a safe room, then sure, why not? I'm not by, and I'm not by by any means what would be defined as a prepper. I'm not paranoid. I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I would say that uh, anybody getting out of the military these days are a little hyper vigilant. Is probably the best way to put it. Um, but I think the odds really are the is what you go by, right? What are the odds of having a violent crime inside your home? You know, they're they're pretty slim to none, depending on your lifestyle. Um, but as a hobbyist, creating these safe environments that could potentially be life-saving if one day you just happen to be put in that position, right? Because let's face it, the element of surprise is the one thing that we're all never expecting. So you have to respect the element of surprise, even if it's in your own home. And you know why not put something together over time that could give your family and yourself a safe haven uh, if something bad happens. Yeah, I, I look at a lot of properties here in Dallas. One thing California doesn't have is they don't have, uh, what do you call it? What do, what do you call a, a basement? A basement. California doesn't have a basement, right? Chicago, Midwest, a lot of the homes right. have basements, so it's it's you can kind of set up Earthquakes, no earthquakes. Exactly. Right. <laughs> can I kind of help you to put that in there? You know, tornadoes, no tornadoes. Right. I mean, California doesn't have that either. But, uh, you know, some of the homes you go to in Texas, you're like, yeah, we have a safe room here. We have this. And you go into, you're like, wow, what for? In case, you know, there's a lot of tornadoes here. you got to be prepared for it, and you're seeing it. And I sometimes wonder if there's a, a level of effectiveness to spending that twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 to put that in your home or no real reason to put it in there. The other thing would be safe. Where is a good place to put your safe in your home? Is there any place you would say is a good place to put it? I would say anytime you're trying to hide anything, you put it in the place where no one's going to look. And for depending on a home or where you live, you know, sometimes that's in plain sight, you know, because uh, let's say a bad guy um, going after the safe, uh, you know, I don't know what the odds are in that anymore, to be honest with you. Um, most of your violent intruders or people that come for your stuff, right? So. Two kinds of intruders. There's the guys that come for your stuff and there's the ones that come for you. The ones that come for you tend to come at night. The ones that come for your stuff come during the day while you're at work. And most of your neighborhood is gone during the day, so that's the best time to come take your stuff. And they've got more time. Uh, they've got all day to sit there and pillage through your stuff. But uh, if, if a safe in itself, I mean, put it in a place where no one's going to look. When I think about hiding a safe in a more traditional, it's like, okay, the master room closet. No one will look there, right? Um, or I'm gonna put it, put it in a recessed place in a wall behind a picture. Mm, that might still work these days, right? I mean, especially if you got a lot of pictures, that's gonna eat up a lot of time for that guy to find the one picture with the safe <laughs> yeah. behind it. Or even better yet, Put a safe behind every picture in your house, but only put your good stuff in one of them so that they are like, what the hell? We got a hundred safes to it's figure out. It's a good out. budget right there. Yeah, you there you let go. Let them go through it. <laughs> how easy is it to break into safes nowadays? You see these videos about how to break into a safe. Is it, is it, do you trust the credibility of having a safe where a guy that's trying, trying to break it into it, you know, it's very slim to none? I think that's an art that has come and gone, first of all. Um, to manipulate a lock open uh, takes a great deal of skill, okay? And so that's a more of a locksmithing father-to-son father trait that's been passed on for generations. So I don't think that's gonna be going on. But there are auto-dialers that you can buy off Amazon that will sit there and dial every combination possible over time. 
And if the auto dialer gets lucky, the lock will open early. But if it happens to dial the last combination last in the auto dialing series, that could be eight hours later. So is a bad guy gonna rely on that kind of odds to get into your safe? Probably not. Now, will he just grab the thing and yank it out of the wall or try to pull it out, take it home, and then spend a week getting it open? Yes, right? So if you're gonna have a safe, make sure it's permanently bolted to something so that it makes it difficult to leave. And then once again, make sure the combination on it is more than, you know, four to uh, more than four characters typically on a manipulation lock. These days, you've got bio um, biometrics mm -hmm. that can open it, which is great. Just make sure it passes the gummy bear test, meaning you put your fingerprint on a gummy bear, put the gummy bear on that biometrics. And there have been some very cheap biometrics that will gummy open bear test. with the gummy bear fingerprint, you know, so make sure it passes the, the gummy bear test. Um, but another important final piece to safes is you have safes that are meant to be secure, and then you have safes that are meant to protect your stuff during a fire. So if something is good at protecting from a fire, it's not necessarily safe. And a safe that's good at keeping people out isn't necessarily great for a fire, right? Mm. So you have to keep that in mind. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. So if you're going to buy a safe, you have to really go with, all right, what are the odds? Or altogether, don't put your valuables at home. Keep them somewhere else. Clint, are you a fan of uh, uh, getting your license to carry? The average citizen to get a license to carry? Like actually taking a course, going through the process? I, I am, I think. But once again, it, you need to be proficient with that weapon, right? You need to... Put yourself through your own personal quarterly, uh, you know, or as many times a year training, mm -hmm. um, whether that be instruction from others, you know, experts in the community, or uh, even just going to the range and shooting. But more importantly, if you're going to carry, um, to this day, before I walk out of the house, I practice drawing because that's the one thing most people don't do, and it's literally, the, yeah, like you, I have a mirror in my house, and I will like draw at least five times before I walk out of the house. Natural for you. You do this just every day. Just do. muscle memory. Just get, you know, making sure that your hands, biomechanics is a big deal. And under stress, your body's going to rely on muscle memory. And if you've never done that, and then all of a sudden you're going to go grab that gun, your gun's going to fly out of your hand or the holster is going to be on the end of the gun. So by doing that, it allows you to walk through all of those little issues that you could find as you first start drawing, mm -hmm. like the holster flying off yep. or the gun flying out of your hand or your magazine falling out because you didn't have it seated properly. I mean, there's a hundred things that can go wrong when you draw that, that weapon. That is very true. So draw, 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 be proficient. If you're not going to do any of that stuff, do not carry a gun because no one wants anyone out there carrying a gun. Just you because. don't. Somebody who knows how to use it, you don't want them out there that don't know how to carry a gun. No, the right. The point being is a lot of yeah. people go get a concealed permit yeah. and then never go shoot. Just because you have a concealed Doesn't permit does don't. not mean you should be shooting that gun unless, perspective. Yeah. unless you are proficient with that weapon. Yeah. Once a quarter go, because in the military, I don't remember how often we went to the range. Was it once a quarter or was it once a year you went to the range? I don't remember the exact number, but you have to go and requalify regularly. Yeah, you should be, it, it, at the end of the day, you should be drawing and dry firing on a regular pace, right? You, you can sit there in your house, draw that weapon and shoot at the television right? No, no bullets, just dry fire. And be, and, and that will do more for you than shooting paper at a range. 
Yeah. <clears throat> uh, good places to uh, uh, hide your guns at the house in case somebody breaks in. Any specific spots, or is it the same typical under, you know, the TV set that's holding it? Any any specific places you have? Because especially for a family who's got kids, mm -hmm. anything you know from experience. Yeah, I, I always tell people um, access um, is the priority. Not access is access the priority. is the priority. Being able to get to it is more important than that actual concealment factor. Um, we talk about, yeah, I got to hide it here, hide mm -hmm. it there. But mm -hmm. the reality is when you, when you put it in all these hiding places, that's not exactly convenient when you actually need it, especially in a, in a, um, you know, life threatening moment, you certainly don't want it. Um, you don't want layers of things in the way in order for you to grab that weapon. So be smart. You know, there's a lot of, uh, quick access digital biometric gun safes that you can actually put right into a drawer. Um, you can bolt it to your nightstand. At least that way, it's right there, the safe, and then all you gotta do is put your fingers on it and it opens and you grab your gun and go. Uh, I think access to the gun is more important than the concealment part. If you have kids, then your access is going to be out of arm's reach of a child, right? So I can grab a gun from the top of my dresser on top of it because I know that my kids or kids visiting my home can't reach that spot, right? So you just gotta, it's common sense, but you know, we both know common sense isn't so common these days. No, no doubt yeah. about it, absolutely, I agree. That's why I wanted to ask you, do, do you carry yourself regularly or no? Are you usually carrying? I do carry regularly, yeah. I mean, I, um, I practice what I preach uh, as much as I can, unless I'm getting on airplanes or, you know. Any place <laughs> you recommend here, any uh, school you recommend here, anybody, anybody that you would endorse? Um, most of the guys that I refer people to are, you know, all over the country. Everybody tells me about the Vegas uh, uh, thing that's going on. You go there for three days. It's real so intense. Shooting courses yeah. out of state. Yeah, there's a bunch I could refer you to. There's, there's Dom Rosso. He is like the NRA's poster boy. He's a former command member where I was at. And that guy puts on a great course. There's Ronan Tactics who is a former CAD guy who does incredible stuff and he's always traveling the country. Um, there's another guy up north, he's also traveling. They, all of them come to Texas every now and then. So it's, it'd be a good idea to go to their websites, check out their dates, yeah. sign up for one of theirs. But they're all tier one guys that are teaching you the tier no, one guys the that are teaching no you. shit way to do it. I like that. Instead of yeah. kind of like, you know. So Clint, I saw some of the stuff you had to make weapons in an office if somebody wanted to. I know I got yeah. your newspaper here. I got some duct tape. Well, it's not really <laughs> the best kind of duct tape. I got That'll a coin and a sock. Show us a few things on what someone can do to make a weapon for all themselves. Right. Quickly out of these, the first thing that come to mind is a newspaper bat. Now, the newspaper bat was actually made popular by hooligans that used to go to soccer games overseas. The security at soccer games overseas have become very, very good because those guys like to beat the shit out of each other when someone loses, right? So the security has learned to really f actually pat people down, make sure no weapons are coming in. So what do these guys do? They start bringing newspapers. Because wow. if you take 10 pages of a newspaper or more, and you open it up like so, and we're gonna do this very quickly, just for you here. Um, and then you roll it diagonally, and the idea is to get as much air out of your future bat as possible. So we're gonna start, and we're gonna get it nice and tight. As much air out. As much air out. Okay. All right, so we get it going. We're not doing a good job, but you get the point. Um, 
So they literally do this in Europe. They really used to do this in Europe. Now I'm, pr I'm pretty sure they don't even let newspapers anymore because of this technique. And then you give it a good old fold. Now if you happen to have you know, good old duct tape, what's great is it can hold it in place and increase its density for you. Um, when we talk about, you know, arm swinging, right? An arm swinging, like a punch, mm -hmm. is usually like 25 miles per hour. As soon as you put something in your hand, depending on who you are, your strength, your flexibility, mobility in your joints, you can now get up to about 50 miles an hour with whether it's a newspaper bat like this, right? And to get hit, with, put your hand out. To get hit with you something totally like that. You totally feel it. <laughs> <laughs> you actually feel it. There's no joke, right? Holy moly, you totally feel You can hurt somebody with this. Yeah, it would. It, it wow. certainly could knock somebody out and it's just a newspaper. Um, if you want to take it to the next level, roll of quarters, you know, uh, these days, it's uh, rare to come by this stuff, right? Change has slowly gone away. Heck, mm -hmm. cash is not even really available these days, right? We all carry cards and we pay for stuff with our phones. But number one, you can put it in your hand, increase density, helps increase velocity, just makes your punch have a little more, you know, um, oomph to yeah, it. Yeah, there right. you go. Yes. Um, or once again, if you want to increase the velocity s substantially, you throw it in a sock and now you can really hurt someone. I mean, this is an improvised sap, really, at the end of the day. The beauty of this is if you're a traveler traveling abroad, it's always good to have change overseas because they're still taking change at tolls overseas. They're still taking change at parking meters. Um, so it's good to have change in a sock. You separate these two, and you're not carrying a weapon, right? Um, bandana, also something you can carry. Um, but if you were to take a fishing weight and place it in the center and then roll it up, an eight ounce fishing weight is great. And you know, you're still going to feel it. Eight oh, ounce. you're going to feel it. Eight ounce is going to knock someone out. So you have to be careful with, you know, any kind of improvised weapon, especially if you're playing around for fun, because let's face it, you just saw a newspaper can be dangerous enough to give someone a concussion, certainly knock them out. So, but if you're in a bind, they certainly could uh, potentially save a life. If you're in a bind. If you're in a bind. Taking a newspaper and turning it into a weapon. There you go. So a, a couple things uh, with you. you you've uh, uh, talked about elections. You've talked about some of the hacking stuff with China. How, how are you viewing somebody that was in on how some of these other countries look at us? Right now, if we look at what's going on with the economy, I'm on the finance side, so I see what's going on with the trade wars. We look at what's going on with sanctions with Iran. We see what's going on with Venezuela, the Brexit, all of this stuff. From your standpoint of regimes and powers, how do you view how China looks at U.S. from your experience? Um, I think we all know that it's a symbiotic relationship, right? Um, to a certain degree, we need them, and they definitely need us. Uh, economically, I'm not up to date probably as much as you are on you know, the interest rates over there, but we know that uh, they are slowly going under. Um, I'm talking businesses uh, that were thriving just a couple of years ago. But I do, I do think that they are still a threat regardless of that relationship of us needing them, them need, and, and, uh, and them needing us, um, mainly because of the numbers, right? Uh, they've got a lot of people, and I always think of like the Red Dawn situation, right? How easy would it be for them to put 100 million people, which is a very small portion 
of their population mm -hmm. with parachutes on their back and fill our skies, right? Whereas 100 million people is a third of our population, right? Be, that's the kind of, that, they've got the numbers. Now, do they have the infrastructure? No. I tell people all the time, the easy way to determine the, the economy of a country is look at the satellite imagery of the Earth at night, right? The infrastructure is defined by the number of lights on in people's homes. And then you look at the Earth, night, all the lights on in Europe, it's bright. You look at America, the whole country's lit up. Now, you go over to China, there's not much light, right? You go over to Russia, there's not much light. So, if you really want to understand a country's economy at its simplest, is just look at how many lights on are at night. Here, we can afford to leave our lights on 24-7, and everybody has access to electricity. But that's not the same when you look at Africa, China, Russia. So when you get scared about the economics, just look at their infrastructure through pictures. What a simple way of looking at it, though. And you look at my books. I like pictures, right? So all my books have pictures because really that's just, it's, and, and for me, it's simple. I'm not that smart of a guy, but you look at the earth at night, you look at the infrastructure, and in that self, just that alone defines a country's economy. But you, you know how every uh, country has certain uh, uh, way that were, like for me, I was born during revolution, so there's a certain level of rage sometimes that you meet in Middle Eastern from Iran because what they've overcome is, the fear of another person taking over control, all this other stuff, right? You see somebody who escapes Russia from the communistic regime, you'll typically see them where sometimes they're like, well, I don't know, listen, sometimes in Russia you have to break the law to make money when the communism was there because we couldn't tell everybody. So it's like, you gotta learn to keep secrets, you don't tell everybody your business. You see somebody from China, maybe when they first come, your first generation, hey, you have to listen to everything the government says, don't push the envelope, then do this. Sometimes these are folks that tell you, this is the uh, community I'm coming from. But I'm more talking about from the standpoint of their aspirations, of who they want to be. I heard you say somewhere, I think it was in some kind of an interview or talk you were given where you said, they will uh, either meddle with our elections or they will spy on us, and then five years later they'll tell us, oh, by the way, we're planning on doing this or something like that. What were you referencing with China when you talk about that. Do you remember that? I think um, what that was relating to is we usually don't detect them in our networks. They, they've usually been in our networks to upwards to five years. Five years. They've been there. When you say before we realize networks, it. what do you mean by that? That is, um, I'm talking, if, you've got, if you're a company, if you're a Fortune 500 that deals in technology, and you've got intellectual property, then the potential of them being inside your network, right, your cyber world, your intranet that is securing all of your secrets as a company, there has been times where when the investigation comes later on, they realize that they've been in there for five years before they were actually caught. And I think that's what you were kind of referring mm -hmm. to. And that's what I'm saying is a lot of times when you talk about hackers in the cyber world, um, you know, they are on the offense, which puts us always on the defense. Um, they are always creating the ways to get in, and then we are always playing catch-up on creating ways to keep them out. They is China or they is hackers? They is hackers. Okay, Yeah, I mean, you, you geopolitically, we know that there is state-sponsored hacking going on, but at the end of the day, it's hacking. Now, 
a lot of times they're hacking and collecting all this information and you're like, what are they doing with it, right? OPM, they, you know, you heard about OPM, the Office of Personnel Management mm -hmm. for the government. You know, I was one of those guys that got a letter from the, Depart from the Department of Defense that said, oh, hey, by the way, when the Chinese hacked OPM, you were one of the people that they collected all your information, right? My, my personnel jacket, you know, potential medical information. I mean, you name it, it's in Why? there. Why do they want to know stuff on well, you? Well, that's the, that is definitely the multi-million, billion dollar question. And I think, I mean, at a, you know, in my small little brain, it's like, well, if we just collect, 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 and then they aggregate all that information and put it into all these different little folders, you know, maybe one day, um, someone that's running, you know, for a certain political office, you know, 10, 20 years from now, well, they've already got a whole bunch of information on them that might not be exactly something that person wants out, mm. you know? Do you think it's that deep? you think they're going to that I level? Just, that's, that's pretty deep. Strategically, right I always kind of think like, eh, well, what would they do with my information, yeah, right? I fully get that because there's an aspect of control and influence and being able to sell that to somebody else. I mean, that's the whole, right. uh, 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 you know, conspiracy you're hearing about why Epstein was, uh, was he killed, was he not? I mean, you know, I asked <laughs> Sammy de Volcarvano, I said, is there any way that he could have been killed? He says, the section there, if he's staying at the place I'm thinking, it's very tough to commit suicide. It's not easy because the ceilings are not high. He's explaining this whole thing. But the fact is Epstein had so much information on everybody else because all the people that would go with him on the island, he knew the names. So people were not wanting this guy to have access to that information because yeah. he can potentially disclose the info to essentially get immunity. Like, hey, leave me alone. I'll disclose everyone info, kind of leave me alone. But uh, you think there is the meddling going on with election? You think this is something that's continuously happening? I think it's I think it's very possible because I mean I think the investigation proved that ads were paid for by foreign entities and those ads popping up on Facebook and Instagram or articles that weren't real you know that you have a large number of people that leverage social media for news yeah. and when they read it they believe it and then the reality is is no it's not and I can only base this on my personal experiences. When I was in the military, and if there was something I was part of that made the news, 85% of it was exaggerated, wrong, mm -hmm. or wasn't even close mm -hmm. to being accurate. And now that I'm out and it's all I have to go by, I look at it and I go, well, probably 50 to 85% of what we're seeing isn't exactly accurate, right? It's all about clicks these days. It's all about sponsorships, advertising, Shh, marketing. Yeah. You know, we, we know the deal, right? But the average person doesn't know that. And so they're led astray uh, through what they get off social media when, you know, they just need a little bit of education that what you see on there isn't necessarily true. That is true. And, and you know, you, you wonder if it's, because uh, I think this one's going to be a very ugly election the next 12 months. I foresee this one being uglier than the last one, and the last one was all, already ugly. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, marketers are just getting better and better and better at it, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, with uh, this election coming up. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your new book that's coming up, The Right Kind of Crazy. So what is The Right Kind of Crazy? Uh, you know, that's a, uh, that's a title we toyed with, right? Okay. Um, there's definitely the wrong kind of crazy, which you don't want to be. Uh, the right kind of crazy, I think, describes a lot of people who go in the service, right? They have a taste for risk. Um, they know they want to travel. They know they want to do bad things to bad people. 
Um, I think there's a lot of reasons, uh, especially these days, or especially after 9-11, why people join the military and want to go overseas. Mm -hmm. And it does take a certain amount of crazy for people to jump out of planes, put themselves in harm's way, get in firefights, blow things up, right? So it's the right kind of crazy that is what we need and is what we should desire to go against our adversaries overseas. So that's more of an umbrella kind of term. It doesn't necessarily apply to me. It applies to anyone serving. Uh, and that's the right kind of crazy. But built into that is that even though you have this whole professional life of risk, what this book proves is that some of that risk can spill over into your personal life. It's almost automatic because when you are living and breathing the special operator life, which is nothing but risk 24-7 in training and overseas, then sometimes you end up inevitably taking risks in your personal life uh, that, you know, could be characteristic of not such a good or great guy, right? And so... Is that because you think you can get away with it and it's kind of like the itch to say, I know I can do this and get away with it. It's kind of like another project or is it just the environment of what you're around for too long of a time bleeds into you? I think it's a little bit of both. Okay. I think it is. I think both are one and the same is that you are, you're living on the edge in one environment and then in the other, you're supposed to be this law abiding citizen, right? And the two really don't match because when we go overseas, we are breaking every law. We don't stop at checkpoints. We do not stop for law enforcement, right? And we're carrying guns when we're not supposed to be carrying guns in countries that we are not citizens of. So when you really look at it that way, and now you come home, and all of a sudden you're supposed to follow all these rules. It can be difficult because you're living and breathing that in order to stay alive. Mm -hmm. And then in your personal lives, right? You're overseas, you're pushing the envelope. Now you're pushing the envelope in your personal life and it can make for a nightmare in your marriage or personal relationships. Um, for some guys, it leads to substance abuse. Um, they end up going and finding something to fill that void that they're not getting because they're not at work right now. And uh, so, to answer your question, yeah, it's, you end up becoming a risky person. But more than likely, if you went into that job, you already were that way to mm -hmm. begin with, right? That's interesting you're saying that because I, I think I heard you say in one of the places we are sociopaths. Is most guys who are willing to do what I'm doing as a Navy SEAL, most of us are off a little bit. How did you describe that, like yeah, the wiring up? I, I did, in a jokative manner, I do think we, you know, you, you have the traits of a highly functional sociopath. That was the word, yeah. Um, meaning, you know, you're not going to have remorse about some of the things you do. Really what that means is, hey, I don't have an emotional connection or a feeling of consequence to the things that I'm doing, right? I'm going to go do it, and I'm going to succeed. I'm going to win, and there are no other options. And I'm not going to feel one way or another about it. And so um, whether you're born that way or there are traits that you slowly start to inherit mm -hmm. once you're in, a, in the military or in the special operations community, um, it really boils down your way of compartmentalizing the things you're doing um, so that they don't affect other things in your life. But some guys have harder times of compartmentalizing it than others. Favorite uh, military movie? I'm curious. I gotta say, man, Full Metal Jacket 
that first half Sick. still just Sick. it makes me laugh it makes me like i mean there's so many parts uh to that first half that i kind of relate to i admire um the the verbiage the fact that every other word is fuck because that just <laughs> takes me back home yes as you know as a sailor and as a seal especially that is no that is definitely part of our daily vo vocabulary so i uh yeah, I, I love that. Uh, I love How that. hard was it for you to stop saying it? I mean, when you became civilian, was it, was it hard to kind Because, of, you know, when I got out, my buddy, when I started working at Bally's, manager pulls me and said, he says, listen, I got to tell you, you can't curse this much. I said, what are you talking about? He says, I'm telling you, you cannot do this. It's yeah. nonstop. I said, I'm not cursing anybody. It's an adjective. Mm -hmm. This is how I've been speaking for the last three. He says, you can't talk like that in this place here. You know, you, you're not going to have a long career with them, but... Was it hard for you to adjust from it, or was it just kind of a you know natural to know if the camera's on, you know, drop the f bomb? It yeah, it it does come a little naturally when I find <laughs> myself here with you. Natural. I'm not <laughs> saying it when I'm around my daughter. I'm not saying it. Yeah, but every other aspect of my life, it just comes out as natural really? as the word the. Yeah, yeah. It's, mean, it's it's almost like a. Uh, uh, I remember when we joined the army, uh, uh, when I went to my unit, I became the guy that would initiate <laughs> new recruits, and it was my favorite thing to do. Some of the stuff I did was just terrible, but it would, they knew it. H1, S1 would tell me, is it S1? S1 would tell me that new recruit is here, perfect, chow hall, sit him right in front of bed. David, they would sit in front of me, and we would start with all these pranks. And some of the pranks we pulled on these guys were absolutely terrible to do. That till today, I get messages on Facebook saying, I don't know if you remember this or not. Do you remember that one time you did this with the Playboy magazine to me? You took my clothes away and you, had, and I'm like, I, I'm so sorry, buddy. It's been 22 yeah, yeah. years, but I remember that. I apologize. <laughs> but these are some things we did back then. But, you know, that whole culture of camaraderie, pranks, you know, it's a culture you miss when you leave, oh, right? It's tough to kind of find in the yeah. civilian world. Did you ever have any challenges with the PTSD yourself or not really? That didn't do, uh, that ha didn't have an effect on you? You know, I, um, I dedicated a chapter to both hazing and also PTSD, which you could get from the other. But, uh, you know, I was one of those guys sitting in the squadron space when I was in, and I was making fun of the guys. I, would, I definitely called it a crutch for a very long time. Like, all oh, these guys, whatever. You know, they're just trying to basically get 100% disability, collect a check. I felt like it, there was a lot of financial drive behind claims of PTSD. Um, and I shouldn't have, because I had a grandfather with it, an uncle with it, and um, I shouldn't have looked at it that way. But for some reason, when you're in and you're active duty, you tend to kind of look at things, um, I would say, far more aggressive than when you get out. Um, but it wasn't until I got out that uh, I found myself on my, you know, runs, um, you know, as a, I, I like to run. So, but I would find myself getting lost in thoughts that would drop me on the spot emotionally. I would stop. I mean, because I would think about things that I had somehow, once again, compartmentalized, put it away, and just did not think about it. And uh, then it started coming more and more and more. And the reality is, is when you live a life at 120 miles per hour, mm -hmm. um, and you go from hero to zero when you retire, right? and you come to a screeching halt, all that luggage has no place to go but hit you in the back of the head, right? 
And so it hit me like a freight train. The buddies that I lost and never went to a funeral. Um, you know, other tragic events that I had forgotten up to the point when I remembered it, right? Years later, I'd go, holy crap, I'd totally forgotten about that. And But the bottom line is uh, I think that hero to zero, that transition period, you're very vulnerable. And if you don't talk about it and... Uh, and let it all out to someone. It doesn't have to be a shrink. Heck, it can be, you know, during an interview on a podcast. Mm -hmm. But get it out so that you can continue moving forward and reinstate your hero status, even though you're a zero at that moment in time. You yeah. know what I mean? Is yeah. this in the last four years when you got out? Yeah. Or is this yeah. Post, post when you got out? Is the moment you're running and you get emotional right. thinking about some of the stories? Right. You all yeah. of a sudden find yourself thinking about a guy and then you realize, wait, he's dead. Yeah. Or um, it could be, you know, to this, you know, like a lot of guys in our cell phones, we have, you know, a lot of guys in there and you're scrolling along and all of a sudden you see that name of your buddy that you can't call anymore. His phone number's still there. His name is still there, but he's dead, you know? So it's weird. Those moments creep up on you when you least expect it. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, but I feel like, you know, talking about it goes a long ways. Yeah. I, I agree. Again, my buddy called me. He told me, he says, Pat, I'm telling you, I'm dealing with PTSD. And at first, I'm like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. you know, you're a tough guy. Are you serious? He says, Pat, I'm telling you. This is really messing with my head. And then one day, I had a conversation. It was late at night. I had a conversation with him for an hour and a half. I'm like, this guy's really having a tough time with this. You know, I kind of put myself in a situation. Now I get it. Mm -hmm. He saw some stuff, somebody, some things like maybe I could have done better, you know, because some of those situations like, the regret of saying, what if I could have done this better? What if this? What if that? But, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's interesting you describe it the way you do. I definitely do know that there's a lot of good guys. I was asking you about the local guys, Elite Meat, what they do. There's a, they're heavily involved with Navy SEALs guys mm -hmm. to help out with it. Any other movies where you said this movie really, you know, is believable in the life of who you lived and what you did? Oh, for what I did? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Charlie Sheen and Navy SEALs. I mean, come on. You go old school. <laughs> you go old school. You know, it's pretty funny. There was a lot of SEALs that advised on that movie, and I think a couple of them were jumping out of the plane, you know, for some of those uh, scenes. Um, it's, it's, it's funny when you go back and watch it now, uh, because that was coming out. I believe I was in high school or college when that I can't remember. And I went and got, saw it, and I was like, wow, you know, because I wanted to, I've wanted to be a SEAL since I was 10 years old. You know? you knew it from 10. Yeah, I'd, I'd met a SEAL in an airport, you know, tra when I was traveling abroad. It turns out he wasn't a SEAL, he's a total fraud. And that's why there's this, it, I, guess, who, I don't know who came up with it, but at 360 to 1, fraud versus real, right? So for every 360 guys out there saying they're a SEAL, one of them Get is actually legit. Yeah, it's probably one of the most fraudulent occupations on the planet. Um, and it didn't help. For a time there, Maxim Magazine was putting in this, who do you want to be at the bar thing? I don't know if you saw that. And so every month an issue would come out and they'd have a full page, almost like infographic, mm -hmm. right? It'd have a drawing of some cool guy and it'd say, this month when you go to the bar to pick up chicks, you can be... Whatever. I, one of one of those months you, was you can be a Navy SEAL. Make up who you are, essentially. Right. Is what you're saying. Right. It was all about, it was just these short little things about how to pick up <laughs> chicks and this is who you are. 
<laughs> and I have to think that Maxim Magazine spawned the fraudulent guys that are out there these days. Because you, you'd be surprised how many texts I get from people that go, hey, is this guy a SEAL? Hey, is this a guy a SEAL? And what these guys don't know is that we have a database that we can go to and search them, right? And nine times out of ten, they are not in the database. Wow. Yeah. I and mean, that's the guy who inspired you, though. But it was a guy. He was totally fake. And then it wasn't until once I was in the military, asked around, did some research, and turns out that everything he told me was just all bullshit. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. so we were on a flight. <laughs> and and uh, uh, Mari, you remember this. This lady sits next to me. Did you go there as well or no? Mari is sitting... This lady's like, uh, so what did you, because we're going on the flight, and uh, it was one of those flights where you had to get down at the tarmac, and you walked, there was two planes. Okay, so one is going to Santa Barbara, one is going to Phoenix. So we know we're going on oh, the right yeah. one to go to Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. So we go to the one on Phoenix, and uh, there's a lady sitting next to me, and a lady sitting next to Marty, and I said, man, I can't wait to get to Santa Barbara. This is going to be a good trip. And the lady's like, what do you mean? This is going to Santa Barbara, Mario, without hesitation. I'm like, yeah, this one going to Santa Barbara. It's like, <laughs> and we're on the wrong flight. And then she starts talking. So, so what do you do for a living? It says, I'm military. And then she's, oh, she became all emotional. Like, listen, thank you for your service. You know, oh, it's yeah. such an, and then Mars, oh, I'm feeling bad. I'm not. I'm just kidding with you. <laughs> yeah, see how easy it is? How easy it is, yeah, to experience that. But that was a whole different prank situation that led yeah, to uh, yeah. Marius. And I got to tell you, I'm not. I'm just, I'm in marketing. I, I, I run an insurance company. Anyways, <laughs> yesterday we were sitting there watching A Few Good Men. You know the scene where he's like, hey, tell me the truth, et cetera, et cetera. And you go back and forth. And Jack Nicholson said, if I told you the truth, you wouldn't believe it. In you my world, the truth. you yeah. can't handle the truth. Yeah. That whole scene. I asked my dad this question. I'm curious to know what you say about it. Do you think he had a point to say, you need somebody like me to lead the military because if you really know how ugly it was, you wouldn't be able to do this job. Do you think partially he is right to do the job that Jack Nicholson was doing? Essentially, being a commander, a Marine, there are some decisions you're going to have to make that's going to be tough. Do you agree with that part of it? Completely. Yeah. Yeah. I think you need guys like that that make the hard decisions, like he said, um, and on top of that, act on them, right? And that's the part that, you know, a lot of the people on the outside watching, you know, kind of the, the fishbowl effect and armchair quarterbacks that don't get that part, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there are a lot of decisions that you certainly have to make, a lot of times under stress. Um, that you at the time are hoping is the right one. And then when it's all said and done, you go, okay, good, that was right. Uh, but there's always the potential for it to be the wrong one. Um, and it can't necessarily always be you know, that person's fault because let's face it, I mean, the circumstances sometimes are overwhelming and you're just happy to have gotten through it, you know, and gotten through it alive. Um, but on the battlefield, I mean, for a long time, anything goes, uh, and then, and then, and then, um, and then attorneys got involved. Right? Attorneys uh, play a big role on what you can and can't do now, um, no matter what the operation is. Unfortunately, and uh, so the movie wasn't all that inaccurate because it's an attorney, right, putting this decision maker that makes decisions under stress and in war on the stand, um, and in reality. It is attorneys that drive rules of engagement and what we can and can't do overseas in real life. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, uh, when, when I would talk to the old school guys in the military, 
you know, guys who had been there for 30 years and I'm 18. And like, yeah, let me tell you how this army was. You know, it's for sissies today. When I ran, it was this. And they would tell some stories where you're like, wait a minute. Literally like this. Says, yeah, that's how it was before. So, wow. I mean, that's, uh, it, it's tough to believe on how mm-hmm. much tougher it was. Partially, some of the stuff that they're doing probably is good today to make it what it is. But some of the stuff they're doing, you can't really toughen up. I believe you can't toughen up soldiers like you once did because you got to be very careful what you tell them nowadays because if you don't, you know, they could come back and say, wait a minute, this is, uh, he made me feel uncomfortable. He made me feel unsafe. There's some of that going on today, which I don't know how you can control that. But, uh, you know, sometimes you need to give the drill sergeant the flexibility to be tough on people. But uh, yeah. it's not as flexible as it once used I, to be. I agree. And we it's ta- unfortunate. We talked about this briefly. <laughs> Joker, what was your takeaway from the movie Joker? Um, Joker, I thought as a performance, man, I thought he did a great job performance-wise. Um, did he bring to life into our to, to, into today's reality how mental health can certainly go from something not that aggressive, right? His mental health issue wasn't something that was threatening until people started pushing certain buttons and then it flipped and he became a murderer, right? Um, so I thought it was good in terms of shining a light on how mental health and the people that have it um, can certainly be triggered or flipped by a lot of people, you know, that they're by people they're surrounded by that could potentially be rude, be inconsiderate, or just not understand. I think we just have to remember that. And I think that's what the movie shined a light on is you just never know what a person is truly dealing with, right? And it doesn't take much for some people with mental health to flip that switch. All of our jobs these days, especially, is we don't necessarily need to flip somebody's switch just because you need to say something rude or you just need to get it off your back or you need to have the last words or you just feel like insulting someone, whatever that is. And trust me, me being from an alpha male world, <laughs> I, we all want to yeah. say stuff to people. Do you people. have a routine nowadays? Now, you know, you're a different age today than when you were first in. I have my own system that I try to tap into. What's your system to kind of calm your nerves down in that moment? Um, I, I think it's a more of an internal de-escalation. It's like I ask myself, really, is it worth it? Um, am I being a good representation uh, for my daughter, you know, by acting like an idiot? Uh, no. So I usually, if I think about, you know, my daughter or the people I care about most, Calms you down. it brings you down a couple of yeah. notches. Cause it, or hey, is it worth going to jail for? Because yeah. these days we know that even if you do the slightest thing that comes off Potentially go violent, yeah. then yeah, you're going to... I mean, I'm a big Joaquin Phoenix guy. I think he's uh, one of the most incredible actors we have today. Uh, I like his interviews a lot when he does interviews with David Letterman and I'm going to go into hip hop. Or if you, ever, if you ever want to entertain yourself, you just go, go watch Joaquin Phoenix's interview. He says the most random things. I, I was <laughs> confused whether he was aligned with Heath Ledger. That's the part that for me was a disconnect. I didn't feel that a brilliant mind like Heath Ledger, who can run the underworld the way he did, oh, yeah. who could put strategies together, I didn't believe the Joaquin Phoenix Joker could be him. No. I didn't think he was that guy where I'm like, this guy's a genius. Because Heath Ledger, to me, comes across as brilliant, mm-hmm. as a genius. And Joaquin didn't. Joaquin came across to me as, watch what I'm going to do to you. Revenge? Fine. But to take it to that level, I didn't feel that strategic part of it. 
And then I also thought it was a very divisive message. I think the last thing we need is a message like that today in America. It was all about dividing the rich and the poor, where, you know, some of the theaters in New York, where the rich people were getting shot, the people in the theater were cheering them on, and they wrote an article about it. Well, you guys got to kind of calm yourself down. Mm. I thought it was a divide. It was a movie that divided the nation more. I think we need a little bit of more Rocky movies today. You know, Rocky (laughs) Four, where Rocky said, look, if he can change, I can change. If you can change, we can all change. Uh, we need a little bit of synergist today. We need a little bit more Rocky today and a little less Joker today. That's my opinion, though. I'll leave it at that. Final thoughts here before we uh, uh, finish off the interview here with you. What are your final thoughts with uh, your book, with your next projects you're working on, with how people can find you, uh, what projects you work on with CEOs, executives, companies who hire you? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think... Um I, I try to maintain uh, one lane, and that lane is crisis management, yeah. um, emergency preparedness. That's it. And so 100 Deadly Skills, like we've touched on, certainly gives good people what you would call bad guy skills, mm-hmm. right? It's important for people to know how to be more self-reliant, more self-rescue capable, and that's ultimately the goal. Now, with my company, Escape the Wolf, that is really going into corporations and building OSHA compliant policies uh, that also hold up in court, that proves that they are providing a safe work environment and acts as an anchor so that you can train the workforce. So we build custom videos. We have already pre-made packaged videos uh, that can deploy onto their servers and they can get their people trained in a smart way, giving them just the information they need to know and not without all the other you know, data that, that, that is the reason why people get bored during their online training at work. We try to keep ours very entertaining, but yet informative. Um, so in a nutshell, you know, it's all about getting people to take some ownership in their own personal security and safety, both at work and also at home. And that's really, that's really it in a nutshell. And uh, people can go to escapethewolf.com if they're interested in us coming in and helping them in their organization. Uh, or they can go to clintemerson.com for the rest of my ecosystem of things I've mm-hmm. got going on. And with that being said, brother, thanks for coming out no, and doing this interview you. with us. Man. Yeah, I really thanks, enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Very insightful. Great hanging out I with cannot you. be a bad guy if I wanted to. <laughs> thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid-David. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.